Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with radhi devlukia on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is robert lamb and i'm joe mccormick and it's saturday time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show we are continuing the re-air of our series fire from the rocks originally published in uh, april and may of 2022 this is part three and this episode came out on may 5th 2022 enjoy welcome to stuff to blow your mind a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're back with part three of our series on naturally fueled flames and the smolderings and, and, and burnings that come from the earth itself or from the rocks. So in the last episode of this series, we talked about the Burning Mountain or Mount Wingen in Australia down in uh, New South Wales which is an example of a naturally fueled type of fire called a coal seam fire, a place where coal formations underground are set on fire and then continue to burn as long as they can, as long as they have access to oxygen, probably. And while there's no way to know for sure, Mount Wingen has been proposed as as, uh, potentially the longest burning fire on Earth. Uh, Though it's interesting because today, as we discussed last time, there's no fire that you can see at the surface. There's only this large patch of bleached and baked soil, which uh, can be hot to the touch, and uh, or at least parts of it can. And it's devoid of plant life within this patch. And then, of course, all around it, there are these uh, interesting uh, sort of, <laughs> there's like a war for survival at the border of this burned region. So you'll see like, uh, you know, grasses trying to survive and then these bleached tree trunks that are uh, long dead but still standing. And then also around this area, you find these deep cracks or crevices in the earth out of which pour smoke and sulfurous fumes. So the fire is burning, but it's burning in the deep. It's burning out of sight, down inside the mountain, fed by oxygen from the surface. 
And nobody knows how the fire inside Mount Wingen got started, but it's presumed to be a result of some form of natural ignition. Maybe the coal at the surface underwent a, a chemical reaction leading to spontaneous combustion, or, uh, or auto-ignition as it's called. Or maybe it was uh, struck by lightning or by a brush fire, but we don't really know. However, there are many other coal seam fires that have mostly in one way or another been created by human behavior. And a big example here is coal mine fires, fires fires in a coal seam that get started one way or another because of mining. There, and there are actually a number of these that are that are still burning throughout the world today. I'm trying to remember if I know any coal mining songs about coal mine fires. There's some really good uh, like mining town uh, folk songs and whatnot, but yeah. I can't remember any offhand that mentioned fires. Uh, the real good coal mining folk songs I know were like union songs. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. Like the High Sheriff of Hazard and so forth. Which side are you on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that sort of thing. Well, yeah, those are great songs, but I don't know of any of them that mention a coal seam fire. However, I did actually find a poem that mentions a coal seam fire, and not just any coal seam fire, but the one that I was specifically about to talk about. Because uh, So there's a very famous example in the United States of a coal seam fire that's been burning for decades, and it is situated underneath the town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. The poem I found was one by a poet named Leonard Cress called The Centralia Mine Fire. And I thought it was really pretty great. It uh, it, it talks about uh, the, the town being uh, the shrine of the holy order of anthracite. And uh, the, the, the last four lines of the poem read, Though odors of bottom damp and methane no longer reek into the streets and ignite, the underground tunnels burn, and each vein of coal potential fuse leads to another domain. Oh, nice. This is a contemporary poet, by the way. Um, yeah. Uh, they have a, a website, leonardcrass.com. So the town of Centralia is in eastern Pennsylvania. It was settled in the mid-1800s and being situated over a large coal formation. I think for most of its history, it was a town where the local economy was based around a coal mine, which would not be uncommon in, in places like Pennsylvania or, or West Virginia, places in the U.S. where there, there's a, a lot of coal and settlements can grow up around uh, the, the extraction industry based on that coal. It was never a huge city. I, th- I think uh, in the early 1960s, the town had uh, some a little over 2,000 residents, I believe. But things started changing in the year 1962 when part of the coal seam that formed the town's industrial base caught fire. Now, there's still apparently disagreement about exactly how it caught fire. One idea I read is that it happened because of a pre-existing coal seam fire from a neighboring region that spread slowly over several decades until it made contact with the Centralia seam and then just burned on from there. But uh, I, I think that's a minority position. I, the more commonly cited explanations involve a garbage dump. And so the, uh, the idea is that the coal caught fire either when a scheduled trash burn at a local landfill penetrated the mine tunnels and managed to ignite the coal, or possibly when some kind of hot ash or coal was dumped directly into the pit and set the coal burning. Either way, it's a good example to think about how if you've got open deposits of coal that are, uh, mm-hmm. that are exposed to the atmosphere, you really don't want to be burning stuff near that. 
Yeah, yeah. Try, trying to imagine the sort of yeah the apocalyptic scenario where the your your garbage fires meet your uh, your, your your coal mine tunnels. Yeah, yeah. And so apparently the locals knew there was a fire in the mines beginning in 1962, but didn't quite realize what a problem it was until years later, around uh, the late 70s and early 80s. And there were a few touch points here. One story from 1979 that I've seen in multiple sources is that there was a local gas station owner named John Coddington, who was also the mayor of the town, who one day went out to check the levels in his underground storage tank. So when you go to a gas station, you know, you, you get out the pump, the, mm-hmm. uh, the gas is being pumped up from these big tanks under the ground. That's where the gas lives. And something seemed off, I guess, when he was checking the levels in the tanks. So he ended up checking the temperature in the storage tanks and found that the gasoline was 172 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa. Yeah, yikes. Uh, and this did make me wonder. I was like, wait, what is the auto ignition temperature of gasoline? Because I, I might have guessed that if you heat gasoline up to 172 degrees Fahrenheit in the presence of oxygen, that would be close to it automatically mm-hmm. igniting on its own. But uh, I checked and no, my intuition was way off. I see some Pretty different numbers, but they're all much higher than this. A website called engineeringtoolbox.com suggests that uh, the auto ignition temperature of gasoline is more like 475 to 536 degrees Fahrenheit or 246 to 280 Celsius. So so it wasn't going to catch fire on its own, but that's still freaky. Yeah. And quick disclaimer out there, please do not try and heat up gasoline. Uh, oh, no, don't to test, test this out these numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- this is not an experiment to perform in your kitchen. In fact, just don't ever take gasoline inside your house. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, so that was 79, but then a real turning point seemed to come in 1981 when a local boy who was 12 years old was nearly swallowed up and killed. Uh, He he managed to survive, but he was nearly swallowed by the sudden collapse of a sinkhole created by the coal seam fire. And so for a contemporary report on this, I found an AP article published on February 20th, 1981, called Pennsylvania Fearful, Fire Rages for 19 Years. This is a, this is a, a I mean, it's a serious story. Don't get me wrong. But also the, the writing in this little news piece is, uh, it really drives home the dread. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it it starts off talking about opinions of locals about you know being exposed to the fumes coming out of this mine and stuff, and maybe I can come back to that in a minute. But first, I just I want to tell the story of this uh, what happened to this twelve year old boy. So uh, the article reads: "Quote, townspeople said an accident Saturday has heightened their fears, leading to a new flurry of government interest." Todd Domboski, 12, was playing in his grandmother's backyard a few houses from his home. When he went to investigate a tiny whiff of smoke, the ground beneath him collapsed. Instantly, the youth was engulfed in a hot, stinking tangle of dirt and tree roots, escaping when his older cousin pulled him out. Todd fell about six feet before grabbing the roots. Florence Domboski, Todd's mother, praised her 14-year-old nephew, Eric Wolfgang, who was swift and strong enough to reach into the hole, grab Todd's arm, and pull him to safety. A temperature of 350 degrees was recorded in the hole. Its depth was not known. And I did look it up. More recent articles uh, mentioned that the sinkhole was later measured, and it was 150 feet deep, or about 45 meters, and choked with carbon monoxide throughout. So... If you can imagine this, you're just standing on 
what you believe to be solid ground and the ground beneath you just collapses. It just opens up and, uh, and, and you're, you're grabbing at tree roots that are protruding <laughs> from the dirt and, uh, and you manage to get a hold of it. But down below you is just a, a pit into nothingness with, with fumes of hell coughing out. Absolutely biblical. Um, there's another great paragraph in this, uh, this AP story that reads, quote, feeding on timbers, coal, and gas in a maze of, of abandoned anthracite tunnels that date back to the 1880s, the creeping inferno is believed to have spread beneath 40 acres despite repeated attempts to curb it. Yeah, so this article, part of what it's reporting on is uh, attempts to put out the mine fire that have failed. Uh, the, mm -hmm. I think at the time this was written, already more than $3.5 million had been spent on trying to fight the fire and uh, to no avail. It just didn't work. And so another thing this article cites is quotes from local townspeople talking about their fears about the mine fire. Like one says that it's kind of scary going to sleep at night and not knowing if you'll wake up in the morning because you've been poisoned in, in, in your sleep by fumes from the mine. And it quotes a local teacher named Bob Gadinsky who says, we feel like rats in a laboratory. No one knows what the effect of the carbon monoxide is going to be in the future. The children, what will be the effect on them? All of this, I mean, all, all of this sounds like Something you'd encounter in a in a horror movie, except it is it is real life. It's a, yeah. a real life horrible uh, situation. Concern for the children, the creeping darkness beneath the uh, uh, the earth, uh, eruptions preying on the innocent. Yeah, a another quote it uh, gives is from a resident named Sally Sulik, who says, "My nose burns, my eyes tear. I'm like a zombie. I just feel like going to sleep all the time. If they don't soon do something for us, they'll drive us crazy." Wow. So in the years since, the population of Centralia has been uh, steeply declining. It basically, I think between 1980 and 2000, it declined to almost nothing as the residents moved away. The local homeowners were offered uh, buyouts from the government to, to relocate. And uh, then at some point, the government essentially condemned the all of the property in town by way of eminent domain. There were a few residents left who didn't want to leave uh, but uh, most of the recent articles I read mention only like a handful of people still living in the area, fewer than 10. And uh, and apparently nobody is going to be allowed to move to the area. So it's just it's just those people there as long as they stay or until their deaths. Wow. Another thing that struck me about the story is I was reading an article in Atlas Obscura by a freelance writer based out of Pennsylvania named Jim Cheney, who uh, was writing up the, the history of the Centralia fire, but also had been there and taken a bunch of pictures on, on the scene. And there was one that struck me as really interesting. It was a picture of uh, what the author says are the remains of Route 61, which is a, a section of roadway, a highway that's now abandoned since it was rerouted elsewhere. And if you look at the pictures, you can see why right down the middle of the road is a gigantic crack, like again, like in a bad earthquake movie. Uh, and uh, the, the so the road is just sort of split down the middle. And it actually reminded me a bit of the cracks and crevices that had been forming in Mount Wingen for the past 6,000 years or more when you look at the pictures of that. I, I don't know the exact cause of every surface feature we're looking at here, but I, if I had to guess, I would say this is probably some kind of collapse caused by the uh, by the burning out that's going on underneath the surface, just like we, we saw in these other cases, or like would have caused the sinkhole. Now, of course, uh, sometimes um, real-life tragedy uh, does inspire great art. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, the town of Centralia 
inspired the fictional town of Valkenvania uh, in the 1991 film Nothing But Trouble. Um, really? Dan, yes, Dan Aykroyd's uh, uh, weird um, horror comedy about um, a bunch of sort of, uh, sort of, I guess you would say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque uh, family residing uh, above a, a big coal mine fire. Um, quite a film, quite a film. Uh, TriStar Pictures or whoever it is should have a standing cash prize for anybody who can manage to watch that whole movie. <laughs> it it has a lot of fun things in it. You got you got a wonderful digital underground performance. I think you got to make and, it through a lot of stuff before you get to that, though. <laughs> Dan right? Aykroyd is clearly having the time of his life in this film. Yeah. So if if it's if it's if you consider it a film for an audience of one, an absolute success, I think. <laughs> You know, there's another interesting tidbit I came across that's related to the Centralia coal mine uh, and seems geologically interesting, but I couldn't tell if it was because of the fire in particular. So there was a news report I read on uh, the the site for a news station called WNEP 16. I guess that's an ABC affiliate. And this was out of Butler Township, Pennsylvania. And it's talking about uh, a geyser in Pennsylvania. That's not something that you would expect to find in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I'm looking and, at the footage here, though. It's, it's It looks geysery. But this is not a natural geyser. This is a geyser that was created when, uh, many years ago, the mining company, I guess, that ran the Centralia mine drilled a hole in the ground uh, connecting to one of the tunnels for ventilation of the mine shafts. Mm-hmm. And somehow now with the tunnels partially flooded, uh, I think it's especially when there's like been heavy rain or when the snow melts in the spring, uh, you you get suddenly a geyser gushing up out of this ventilation hole. And it looks like a real geyser. <laughs> it's just spraying mm-hmm. up into the air and then running off into a nearby creek. And uh, they say that the geyser has a distinct smell. It smells like uh, like eggs, which I guess is an indication of, of sulfurous uh, compounds. And that would, again, make sense since, you, you know, you got the coal down there and it's on fire. And I was unable to tell if, if this geyser is actually related to the fire or if it's just a, an unrelated weird feature of the same mine. It, you see, like, uh, there's a quote in the, the, the tweet that's attached where um, uh, the reporter is saying that, uh, uh, that it's been there as long as, quote, anyone can remember uh, there's a mention of like some people say, oh, there used to be a second one. And it is kind of, I mean, all of this is a stark reminder of, of how an enterprise like coal mining, how you, you're, you're changing the earth, yeah. uh, you know, at least on a local level. And of course, you can get into larger uh, issues of, uh, of, of actual climate change as well. But even just on a local level, like you're just, you're, you're, you're vastly altering how the, uh, uh, the ground beneath your feet is functioning. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. 
Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. uh, Let's move on to another fire uh, in the earth. Uh, This is a a fun one. I'm excited to talk about it because it concerns natural fires that uh, may have been burning for two and a half millennia, as well as a mythical monster. And that monster is the Chimera. Ooh. Uh, And the Chimera, of course, uh, I I think most folks out there will have some image of this in their mind. Uh, There are some wonderful depictions of it. There's the Chimera of of, um, Arezzo. It's an Etruscan bronze statue from 400 BCE uh, that's absolutely gorgeous if anyone has seen this or seen a reproduction of this. I've, Um, I've been to Arezzo, but I don't think I've seen this. Hmm. Well, I, I'm not sure. I, I I didn't put in my notes where it is currently housed, so I don't know where its current status is. But uh, I've seen plenty of, of images of it. You know, it's this wonderful, uh, uh, you know, dark bronze finish, and uh, and it looks impressive for a creature that is not always impressive in artistic renditions because it is it is not only a chimera; it is the chimera. It is this. Uh, it is this uh, uh, this hybrid form that uh, some have criticized for not completely making all that much sense and maybe being too counterintuitive. So at, at the heart of things, the Chimera is, of course, a goat monster. Um, mm-hmm. Most of its recognizable body is usually that of a goat. I guess one of the interesting things about uh, the Chimera of Arezzo is that less of it is a goat, and maybe that's why it's more impressive. Like, it looks like the artist decided to lean more into the, um, in, into the lion aspects of its body. But, uh, but generally, when you hear, hear talk of it, yeah, we're talking about something that is, uh, in large part, a monstrous she-goat. 
Uh, it roams the myths of ancient Greece and Rome, uh, and the name itself uh, means she-goat, uh, and in all depictions, ha- it has at least some goat properties to its hybrid form. Hmm. That's funny. I certainly believe you that that's true, but I do not really associate the chimera with a goat at all. I, I think like, <laughs> yeah, like lion, snake, eagle or something. Hmm. Yeah, some depictions, uh, it has wings. I want to say in the, in the, the Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual, they give it wings, um, specifically. Now, the, the oldest records of the monster can be found in the sixth book of Homer's Iliad. Uh, and this is you know, uh, written down at some point in the 8th century BCE. And the beast here is described as a great fire-breathing she-goat with a lion's head and the tail of a serpent. And then slightly more recently, Hesiod wrote of the Chimera in his book, Theogony, uh, composed between 730 and 700 BCE. Uh, so, so in uh, uh, Theogony, Hesiod is discussing the monstrous echidna, quote, divine stubborn-hearted echidna, half nymph with dark eyes and fair cheeks, and half, on the other hand, a serpent huge and terrible and vast, speckled and flesh-devouring beneath caves of sacred earth. Mm. And there in the depths, echidna mates with the deadly giant uh, Typhon, and they produce, quote, fierce-hearted children, uh, monsters all, including the two-headed dog, Orthus, the three-headed dog, Cerebus, and even the, the even more-headed uh, Lernaean Hydra, as well as the Sphinx, the Nemean Lion, and of course, the Chimera. Uh, and here's what uh, Hesiod had to say about the Chimera. And these are, these are all translations from the, uh, uh, the Reverend J. Banks translation. Quote, but she, Echidna, bore Chimera, breathing restless fire, fierce and huge, fleet-footed as well as strong. This monster had three heads, one indeed of a grim-visaged lion, one of a goat, and another of a serpent, a fierce dragon, in front a lion, a dragon behind, and in the midst a goat, breathing forth the dread strength of burning fire. And in the midst a goat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, like, mostly a goat is what you're saying. Most, mostly a goat. That's what, that's what I take it to mean. <laughs> is that you're saying the middle head is the goat head, I think? Or wait, but it's also saying in front a lion and a dragon behind. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I'm trying to picture this. I'm having and trouble. And I think this is, this is why you have a lot of variation in how it's depicted. Like, that, uh, the, the Etruscan statue, for instance, and in, in other depictions, will have the goat head just straight up growing out of the back of the creature. <laughs> Other like times a shark you'll spin, have, but it's a yeah. goat head. <laughs> and the goat always looks a little awkward there. Like, what, what are you even doing there, buddy? Like, <laughs> you can imagine the creatures moving around the goats just sort of awkwardly uh, making a play for vegetation and stuff to nibble on. You see a ripple in the water. The Jaws theme plays, but it's a goat's head yeah. poking out over the sand. Bah. Yeah. Wait, do, do goats bah? They don't really. They bleat. Yeah, the, the bleeding. So yeah, you see, then you see it depicted other ways, where the, all the heads are sort of arranged up front and so forth. Um, but uh, yeah, you can. I, I imagine a lot of this is coming from different interpretations of, of like this passage. Now, every monster must have its slayer, of course, and in this case, it is mighty Bellerophon, sometimes described as a half-human son of Poseidon, who uses Athena's bridle to capture the winged Pegasus, ride into battle against the Chimera, and then he thrusts his spear into the monster's flaming maw, where what happens? The metal instantly melts. Oh no, he's defeated. Oh no, he's not, because then the liquid metal chokes the deadly monster to death. 
So I always found that to be kind of a nice twist. Oh, yeah. Now, surely the hero didn't intend for the metal to melt and choke the monster. I don't know. Never doubt these these heroes. Oh, these okay. uh, these Greek heroes are, are are wicked smart. That strikes me as more like a like a War of the Worlds type ending, where yeah. the, something you didn't even expect kills the monster. Now you're, you're probably asking, okay, well, how does this tie into places and fire? Uh, well, this this myth is certainly tied to specific places. Uh, for starters. It is written that the Chimera was for a time the pet of the king of Caria before it escaped and rampaged. Uh, this was a region of Western Anatolia from the 11th through 6th centuries BCE. This region is now part of Turkey. But then the Chimera is said to descend upon an area to the southeast of Caria in Lycia, where it uh, generally devours every mortal in sight and just sets everything on fire. So this is the realm of Mount Chimera. Uh, in the Book of Imaginary Beings, uh, Jorge Luis Borges writes that Virgil describes the Chimera in the Aeneid and that the 4th and 5th century commentator, Servius, ties the monster uh, to Lycia and went so far as to say that the monster was a metaphor for a volcano there. And mm. uh, this was apparently echoed by Pliny the Elder as well. Okay, Interesting. This is how Borges uh, summarizes it. Quote, the base of the volcano is infested with serpents. On its sides, there are meadows where goats pasture. And on top, flames shoot forth and lions have their dens. I see. Okay, so it's like combining the the different types of local wildlife, at least allegedly. The, the serpents around the, the base, and then the goats grazing in the meadow and the lions in their caves and then uh and then you have of course the the flames coming out i guess that's the dragon aspect right yeah so uh, i have to say like when i when i was reading this it sounded a little far fetched to me uh because we've talked about geomythology before but i don't remember like a version of geomythology where like the aspects of a, gen a given geographical feature are then just sort of cobbled together into a into a hybrid monster and uh and as it turns out, Borges also finds this ridiculous uh, and, and mentions that he thinks it's absurd, as well as uh, an idea that I think was put forth by Plutarch that uh, Chimera is the name of a pirate who just happened <laughs> to have these three different animals as part of his uh, you know, iconography and his flag and so forth. It was a pirate. Now, one of the, the advancements in the sort of figuring out this myth and tying the myth into actual um, uh, geology uh, the, this occurred during the uh, the early uh, 19th century. Uh, in 1811, hydrographer and Irish rear admiral Sir Francis Beaufort linked Mount Chimera to the geographical features in the region known as uh, Yanar or Yanartas. And he explored this region, I believe, in 1811 through 1812, uh, basically going around uh, looking at various ruins, citing various ruins. And he's, he's noted during this time for rediscovering Hadrian's Gate, built, for, built there for Roman Emperor Hadrian in the year 130. So, Yanar, Yanartis, what does it look like? Well, it's, it, it matches up with some of these other descriptions we've discussed in these episodes. You have a rocky mount here with active gas seeps that have produced burning flames for, depending on what sources you're looking at, perhaps uh, two and a half millennia, so perhaps uh, 2,500 years. Mm. So some s still kind of interpret it and say, well, this site could have been the inspiration for the monster itself. Um, and I guess you can 
kind of open that up and you can look at the ideas of the monster being a metaphor for the for uh for this mountain or just kind of like the oh here's this weird landscape with fire and you end up with this idea of well a monster lives here surely this is the the habitat for some sort of monstrous fire breathing uh creature mm-hmm so the seeps in question here are largely um, on barren ground, and they follow various fissures and perhaps faults, according to a 2015 paper um, I was looking at from um, Meyer Dombard et al., published in Frontiers in Microbiology. Uh, they, these researchers also reported a fluid seep that they discovered. Uh, um, in, uh, in this area. And numerous papers mention as well that sailors used the fires of the mountain as a kind of natural landmark at night in ancient times. Today, however, uh, hikers visit the flames and they do things apparently like brew tea, uh, cook marshmallows over them, or you know, just, just look at them as well, uh, because uh, this is all part of the Olympus National Park. So if, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're in Turkey, this is a, a site you can go and see. Hmm. Now, the seeps here are reportedly stronger, as are the flames during winter. And apparently, this is linked to changes in atmospheric pressure and groundwater recharge. Um, and, uh, and this kind of takes us back to what we were just talking about. You know, when you disrupt uh, the underground environment through um, extensive coal mining, um, you know, these are the sort of um, things like groundwater recharge are the, are, are, are the situations you're potentially interfering in. Um, the vent gases that come up, I was looking at a profile of these, and it is mostly methane, and there's some other uh, ingredients in there as well. Mm-hmm. Now, as to whether there are actual snakes there, um, I mean, one presumes, I know there, there, there are snakes in Turkey, um, I guess it's, it, we can presume that there either are goats or could have been goats there as well, goats like a rocky area with some vegetation to munch on. Um, and as far as lions go, you won't find... Uh, any lions here today, but there were once lions found uh, throughout what is now Turkey. So, um, I, I mean, I guess all of that is plausible as well to at least a certain extent. Oh yeah. If you compare maps of the, uh, the historic distribution of lions to the present distribution mm-hmm. throughout, uh, Africa and Eurasia, it's, uh, well, on, in, on one hand, it's, it's kind of sad to see yeah. how much their range has been, uh, constricted, but it's also eye opening to, like a, uh, it's eye-opening about how so many uh, ancient uh, myths and stories all throughout, say the the Middle East and, and the Greek myths and stuff. Is, it seems that there are lions everywhere, and you're like, what? Because there, you don't really think that there are lions wandering around in say Greece or Turkey today, but you know, uh, thousands of years ago, there absolutely were. And it brings us back to the uh, the topic we discussed in the past about the the first known human animal hybrid re- represented in art, uh, that of the lion man. Yeah, yeah. Now this side, uh, this side is also interesting because there is a link to the Greek forge god Hephaestus here as well. Uh, Hephaestus, of course, was the blacksmith's god who was also deformed after his father Zeus cast him off Mount Olympus for taking his mother Hera's side in an argument, or at least that's one version of the story. Uh, the remains of a temple to Hephaestus yeah, can be found uh, at this site just below the fires, which again makes sense given that the you know sites of natural flames like this seem to be inevitably tied to human industry, like we've discussed in these various other examples. People see them and they think of uh, of like cook fires in the depths maintained by the little people, or uh, you know we think of uh, of, of industrial uh, processes, uh, uh, you know chemical fires and so forth. Mm. But then sometimes we also tie them to fire breathing monsters. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, I wanted to mention one more thing that that Borges brings up about the chimera. He discusses how he thinks that the chimera was ultimately, quote, too heterogeneous. In other words, these parts were all too dissimilar, and it all resists, quote, merging into a, into a single animal. Uh, so I guess in that you could say that he's sort of saying that it's too counterintuitive uh, to a certain extent. He contends that people got a bit tired of the idea of the chimera, and you, we see that reflected in the, the use of chimerical and the use of, uh, of chimera as referring to something that is just too outrageous to be true, too outrageous to actually exist in the real world. Uh, something that just doesn't gel together in a form that you can believe in. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm always curious about why our intuitions about imaginary beings work the way they do. I, I'm sure I've asked questions like this on the show a bunch of times, but like, why does one unreal monster seem 
plausible in quotes and another mm-hmm. one doesn't uh like the chimera is yeah it's got a goat head in the middle of its back or at least in some depictions and people are just like yeah no no yeah Th- that doesn't work the hydra which has many heads coming out of the yeah that that works yeah i mean even the vegetable lamb of tartary as fantastic as that is and is you know with that the, the gulf existing between plant plant and mammal like that feels more believable and i think clearly was more believable for a very long period of time uh, compared to the chimera. Yeah, so what are the underlying psychological factors? Like what subconscious criteria do we use to judge an unreal being that makes sense to us versus an unreal being that doesn't? The chimera goat head, uh-uh, yeah, that's just, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I, maybe part of it comes down to like a basic, uh, you know, primal, estimation of another animal like what is is the head on this thing going to bite me what does the head on this animal seem to want to do mm-hmm. and uh if you look at that goat head sticking out of the middle of the chimera's back like, what what am i supposed to make of that yeah what's it even doing <laughs> no cyclops on the other hand one big eye in the forehead i, I picture that all day long that works yeah, I, one of the interesting things about these, uh, I, I guess you could call them, you could think of them as minimally counterintuitive uh, monsters and um, and hybrids, is that uh, the best of them, we continue to to look at and, and, and reconsider and also apply like theoretical biological models. Like I've read, I, I know I read a wonderful paper once on the biology of the centaur. Uh, mm-hmm. where the author was discussing how the centaur's body would work and, uh, you know, really focusing in on the um, the circulatory system and, and the fact that it would need two hearts, uh, one in the human part and one in the horse part. You know, mm-hmm. I, lo- I love examinations like that. So, it, But it's an example of how the, the centaur, as fantastic as it is, uh, is not so far removed from reality that we can't apply uh, this line of thinking to it. Whereas, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody go out on a limb and write a, uh, you know, a paper like this is how the biology of the chimera would work. This is how it would breathe fire. This is the function of the the live goat head growing from its back, and this is why its tail is a live snake. This is the diet it consumes. <laughs> yeah, it, this it, uh, it it's just it's just ridiculous. Now, coming back just a little bit to uh, you know to what we've been talking about here, eternal flames and all, I, I do want to point out that this is uh, the examples we've brought up are, are, are certainly not the only examples of natural gas seeps and so forth, where uh, eternal flames have evoked mythic ideas, religious devotion, and so forth. Um, I was reading uh, Seeps in the Ancient World, Myths, Religions, and Social Development by Giuseppe uh, Etope of the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology in Italy. Uh, And he has a book uh, titled Natural Gas Seepage, but one of the chapters is devoted to just looking at some of these examples. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he mentions the Chimera myth. He mentions the fires of Baku that we uh, previously discussed, as well as a a couple of other examples. There's um, the Baba Gurgur seep in Iraq. uh, He he writes was probably the burning fiery furnace into which... uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar cast of the Jews. I've seen this claim before. I was right. So Baba Gurgur is, uh, it's like an oil field near uh, Kirkuk, I believe. And mm-hmm. uh, there, there is a, at least one place there where, yeah, there's a, 
there is a natural gas seep where uh, the the volatiles that are coming out of it have been set aflame and they're burning. And yeah, I've seen, it, I, I don't know what the actual evidence is that this yeah. is the basis of the Bible story. One of these many cases where somebody like connects a story from ancient history or mythology or legend to a, a an observable feature today. And I and in some cases you can do that like there's a pretty clear link and in other cases i'm not quite sure what how how strong the evidence for that direct connection is uh but so yeah there is the story of king nebuchadnezzar throwing uh what is it shadrach meshach and abednego oh, into, yeah, a, yeah. into a burning furnace uh, and and I have read some modern authors saying, ah, maybe the furnace was this geological feature we see today. Baba Gurgur, by the way, I think means something like uh, like Father Flame or Daddy Flame. Another example that he brings up is the sacred um, uh, Mangarmas Flame in Indonesia, which has been active at least since the 15th century, uh, he writes, and is still used in annual Buddhist ceremonies. And then there's the Oracle of Delphi in Greece, uh, which we've discussed uh, at least a little bit on the, the show in the past. Um, there's uh, there's talk of there having been an eternal flame at the at the Temple of Apollo there, at least at one point. Uh, and then there was there's this idea that uh, I believe researchers have kind of gone back and forth on this idea that vapors from the earth contributed to the visions granted to the um, the, the priestess of the sacred site. The, um, the the idea, I think, kind of fell out of favor for a while, but more recent geological research, I was looking at it from 2004, 2005, they argued that, okay, the site here lies over a fault where gas leaks could theoretically cause oxygen reduction uh, in, an, in an individual that would then result in a mild hypnotic state complete with hallucinations. I mean, even coming back to this um, this AP article about Centralia, you have this quote about the you know the woman talking about feeling like she's a zombie walking around due to the fumes, yeah. uh, which is an, an altered state. And in this and in this case, I mean, she she knows that it's not the divine trying to speak through her, etc. Uh, but you can you can well imagine a situation where if you're combining holy expectations, religious expectations, and uh, and ritual with this sort of environment, you could easily get to this point. If only we could get a medical readout on the uh, the oracles of Delphi. That uh, that might be really illuminating. I yeah, don't think I, that kind uh, of information exists. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind going back and looking at the, the, the oracle uh, again in the future. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting uh, writing about it. Uh, it has a has a wonderful history. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. Um, this, this was a fun journey. We got to talk about a number of fascinating uh, locations around the earth, some wonderful history, mythology, and religion. Um, if there's a, a particular site we didn't discuss uh, that you would like to bring to our attention, certainly write in and let us know. And especially if you have visited any of these locations and you have direct uh, firsthand experience, perhaps you've uh, actually glimpsed the flames emerging uh, from the earth, uh, definitely write in and tell us about it, share your photos, etc. Uh, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, uh, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish every Tuesday and Thursday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Short form uh, monster fact or artifact episodes on Wednesdays. Listener mail on Mondays. And on Friday, we set aside most serious concerns and just discuss a weird film with Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us 
at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts